conspiracy theories, misinformation, disinformation for profit. These are some big and heady topics for our times, and they have proven to not just be related to social media and the internet, as we have seen recently. They have very real world implications and sometimes very violent ones. So we are returning to this topic today with Samantha North, who is a PhD candidate studying disinformation. She got her start after covering Brexit as a journalist. Um, and we dig into her analysis and her definitions of tribalism. And we try to get at what are the implications for private enterprise as well, as we have started to see disinformation for profit, astroturfing, and essentially narrative attacks against private companies. And so without further ado, let's get into it with Samantha North. Samantha North, welcome uh, to the podcast. We're thrilled to have you here. Thanks, George. It's really nice to be here. I'm looking forward to chatting to you about these topics, um, and hopefully we're going to have a very lively chat. Yes, I hope so. Um, so why don't we start out with what led you into researching and studying disinformation? I know you started in journalism. I saw that you also um, did some post-baccalaureate work in business school, and so just interested on how you transitioned into that. Yeah, it's been quite a quite a winding road, as you might have gathered from reading that stuff. Um, I went to Istanbul in 2014 to, to start working as a freelance journalist. And while I was there, um, ISIS became a very prominent thing in, in the summer of 2014. And I was having a lot of conversations and interactions with, with journalists and people who were going to Syria. And, you know, um, looking at the propaganda and, and all of the, the videos and everything that ISIS was releasing. And I became quite fascinated by how they were using social media to draw in new recruits and how they were really persuasive and, and leveraging that to great effect. Um, and that, that was kind of the beginning, really. And disinformation didn't really become a thing until probably 2016, right, when, mm -hmm. when Trump sort of released fake news onto the world. Um, so at that point in, in 2017, when I was, had become interested in, in following all of this stuff that was unfolding, both in, in the UK with Brexit and in the US with Trump, uh, I ended up applying to, to a PhD, which was, um, would allow me the chance to, to study disinformation on social media. And that was a really exciting opportunity. And it heralded really the start of all this, you know, really having a chance to get my teeth into it professionally rather than just kind of as a hobbyist. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I think um, we reviewed some of the research that you had done on Brexit and curious to know what is your current focus of, of research? Is there any particular thread you're pulling on? Is it the technology side, the, the social science side? Yeah, it's a combination of, of both of those and it, and it has been throughout. So um, the structure of my PhD is, is going to be three research studies tied into an overarching narrative. Mm -hmm. and, and tribalism in politics will probably be the, the thrust of that narrative. So, so the first piece of research I did, which you probably looked at, was the, the tribalism in the Twitter data sets around Brexit. And that, that was a really good starting point because it, it kind of it showed us what tribalism looks like and, and how these, these two sides of this debate interact on Twitter and what they're, you know, really drilling down into what their interactions look like, like the language they use, the kind of insults that they throw at each other. Um, 
And after completing that, I was actually um, inspired by the pandemic to to take that forward and, and look at how um, a polarized society uh, ends up reacting to to problems that affect the whole of society, like like COVID nineteen. So, so the thing I'm doing at the moment is um, more of a survey based approach, where I'm looking at people's attitudes to to first of all to Brexit and secondly to the pandemic to see if there's any links between um, their original polarization over the, the vote and mm-hmm. polarization in the way they respond to the pandemic, which basically are they skeptics of the pandemic? You know, do they think it's a hoax? Do they think masks don't work? All of that stuff, which kind of links to a similar pattern in the US. And then the people on the other hand who, who do believe it, who wear masks happily and who promote social distancing and so on. I just want to see if those divides correlate to the original political divide. And, and so far, to, to an extent, they are. So I think once that's finished, it's going to have some quite interesting outcomes. Are those stuff. surveys taking the form of interviews? Is it an online survey? Is Just how, how do you take me through that investigation? Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's, it's quite simple, really. Um, it's, an, it's an online survey released mm-hmm. on something called Prolific, which is where people... People come together from all across the UK and, and they answer answer surveys, I think, for a small reward. Um, so you can get a lot of respondents in a very short space of time. Um, and you can get them you know, from all demographics and from all political persuasions. So it's, it's really good for like segmenting and, and getting exactly the right kind of people for, for the research question that you're trying to answer. Great. I want to explore the term tribalism a little bit more. Um, you know, in the early days, early being 2013, 2014, you know, in the U.S., some circles were predicting the balkanization of uh, the Internet. And I understand the problems that come with that term, but it's left over from another time. Um, but yes, this fracturing uh, and this regionalization, even of the communication channels, for example, the heavier reliance on WhatsApp in India and Brazil, for example, Facebook in the US, WeChat in China, stuff like that. But let's go further into the conversations and in your research. So can you can you kind of expand on tribalism and, and how you define it and, and how you see that taking place? Yeah, um, absolutely. So when looking at tribalism, it's, it's really important to remember that this is as an innate kind of human drive and it's not necessarily specific to one political side. You know, like I know conservatives and the right wing get a lot of flack, um, you know, sometimes justified, sometimes not. But actually, like this is common to, to both sides, to all parts of the right. political spectrum for a start. And, and, it, and it comes from evolution, you know, like in the beginning, we felt protected when we were part of our in-group and threatened if they didn't accept us and that they kicked us out to be eaten by a saber-toothed tiger <laughs> or something <Right>. like that. <laughs> so it's quite it's quite a deep-seated thing. Um and then like kind of where, where it manifests um, in, in more modern times, uh, people, people are seeking um, a self-esteem boost from, from feeling like they're part of an in-group. Um, and this has been backed up by some, some pretty famous research. There's one guy called Henry Tajfel and another guy called Muzaffar Sharif. And both of these guys in the, in the 60s and 70s did quite seminal studies looking at how, how groups um, became tribal on a on very trivial matters, you know, like even the results of a coin flip 
the heads group mm-hmm. and the tails group would start to become hostile towards one another. And, and, you know, and, define, and uh, define themselves in opposition to one another. Exactly. Right? Like, yeah, exactly. So it's something as trivial as that. And then if, if you, you know, think about how, how, um, how important political things are for people's lives, you can, you can see kind of how it would be amplified. Um, so so to, to be part of an in-group, yeah, you need to define an out-group. And then um, the behavior patterns that follow, um, people show this loyalty to their in-group people and correspondingly a hostility to the outgroup. Um, and that's what I've seen happening uh, in, in the two sides of Brexit, especially on social media, uh, and even in the mainstream media to, to an extent as well. It's, it's kind of mirrored there too. And I find that fascinating that it takes place in a virtual environment, right? I understand the, the past studies tend to use physical proximity right like you would have the heads group in one side of the room and tails but these are people connected across time and space you know it sometimes feels like the internet is the fourth dimension you know that somebody on the right in the u.s could be uh sympathetic and sharing um and you know cheering on a brexiteer for example and they feel like they have a shared language or a commonality, even though they will have never seen one another, you know, <laughs> and, and, and yeah. were it not for the internet, they would never have encountered one another. It's a really interesting dynamic. And actually like the overlaps between the U S and, and, and the UK's debates. Um, like if we, if we go down the road of looking at coordinated interference in, in those, mm-hmm. both those political debates, you know, then kind of people, um, you know, coordinated troll armies operating for Trump could also very easily operate on the side of Brexit as well. And I think that that has been documented. I mean, <clears throat> I can't remember the exact pieces of research, but there's definitely overlap between between troll accounts that support Brexit and those that support Trump. And they, they switch Indeed. between the two. Yes. And we, we've seen in our own research similar um known Russian accounts, for example, championing either side, because what they're just trying to do is drive a wedge. They're trying to exacerbate the divide, like kind of sneak into that space and push it to its extremes. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, And so in your work, you talk about affiliated language, you talk about the kind of the terms um, that people use. And I'm also fascinated by this because I have a hobbyist fascination with linguistics, but can you um, talk about kind of the role of natural language processing in your research and and how you came to understand how the two groups talk to one another or talk about each other? Yeah, so um, I suppose um, I should just mention what the data set looked like. So the starting point was um, four four queries on Crimson Hexagon platform. So we were Mm -hmm. able to access the um, historical power track API of Twitter the firehose and get access to data from just before the referendum in 20 in June 2016 all the way through to the point of collection which was February 2019 so we had a massive amount of tweets and every tweet had one of these four keywords so brexiteer versus remainer which is the slightly more polite way and then mm-hmm. extremist and ramona which are the much more offensive <laughs> variants of those so we, we queried for those two groups as a, as a starting point um and then it, it was it was fairly simple analysis really we, we started just by um gathering um biograms you know as to what what those terms were associated with mm-hmm. and 
we, we, we pull up a lot of quite offensive language, um, quite ideological things, stuff that fed into um, conspiracy theories and, and tropes about the EU and immigrants and this kind of stuff. So, so, so some of it was kind of predictable in a way, like we, we, we had an idea that this kind of, these topics would be discussed, but we needed to see them, actually the data supporting that and to see them characterized and, and to really get kind of, um, to have our research questions answered really in, in, the, in the affirmative. And, and and they and they were so yeah so it, it wasn't like you know super complex NLP but it was really good at, at bringing up very effective results. Yes, and have you seen any changes in kind of the front line of what the U.S. War College calls mimetic warfare? They they view memes as almost more dangerous because it's harder to detect by algorithm and a meme by its definition can be repurposed, recontextualized. Um, it's harder to trace the source of the imagery. Do you have uh, any, I guess I'm just curious in as to your views on that. Yeah. Um, for, for starters, a, a meme, I, I believe can be a number of different, I think it means a unit of cultural mm -hmm content right so it could we, we always think it's those images with the big chunky text but yeah. i think that's only like one one small section but but anyway i, I totally agree um and i remember reading this in the very beginning of my phd research about how images are processed by the brain so much more quickly than text because i was actually thinking to look at images at the beginning but because of you know so many issues about image-based analysis i decided to abandon that um it is more challenging to dealing with images there's you know, just basic things like processing power and concerns about storing such a huge amount of data. Mm -hmm. I mean, even my text data was about 80 gigabytes. So, you know, it's right. hard <laughs> for an average laptop. I had to buy a new laptop just for, for dealing with it all. Um, but, but technology is progressing all the time, right? And um, nowadays, I know that some of the social listening platforms have got quite useful image recognition capabilities. Uh, which can be can be used for this for this stuff, um, and there are some tools that can extract text from out of the the images as well, uh, and analyze different keywords based on that. And I think that's that's quite an important capability, really, because okay, the images and themselves are important, but the big chunky text is what hits you first, isn't it? I mm -hmm. think, like from, from in my experience, anyway, and that's almost always a hyper partisan and, and tribal and, and very jarring and clickbaity kind of sentiment. So I think it really opens up a new um, expanse for analysis to be able to grab that text and, and analyze it um, in content and in, in relation to the image as well. Uh, I haven't done much playing around with this with this stuff, but uh, I'm following it from a distance with, with some fascination. Um, I think that, yeah, for the future, we're better prepared than before. Yeah, it strikes me as such a multidisciplinary effort. We were talking with um, a researcher associated with MIT earlier this year, and they had done psychological studies as to why people share fake news. And, and even when people know it's fake, it's almost like they're trapped just in the engagement model of social media, right? They want to share something to garner likes and, and shares. So yeah. that, that, that desire for that uh, affirmation through engagement overrides sort of the critical thinking that they they know in fact that the story is fake and then yeah. when they introduced a slight nudge 
um, which was, are you sure you want to share this? Have you clicked? You know, they, they were actually able to mitigate that sharing behavior by almost 50%. It was really like somebody just wow. waving their arms yeah. and saying, pause, <laughs> are you sure you want to share it? And it's like, so it's, it's interesting yeah. that, you know, you're using natural language processing. There's sort of a human psychological component. You pointed out there's also a clear anthropological connection in terms of, you know, humans are social creatures. They want to belong to a group. Um, it, it seems uh, difficult, but so you mentioned technology is always changing. So certainly since uh, Brexit, since the 2016 election, and even uh, more recently, the, it feels like the disinformation landscape is continually changing. First disinformation, then misinformation, influence operations, coordinated inauthentic behavior. We have a slew of terminology. Mm-hmm. Um, can you point to any big trends or changes that have even occurred since you started researching the topic? You know, yeah. it just feel, it feels like you've got a moving target. It is a bit of a moving target. Um, <laughs> not helped by how complex the human brain is. Um, but but yeah, so, so things I, I've seen in more recently, um, what one, one thing that happens a lot now is something called narrative laundering. There's a very interesting mm. study from some people at Stanford. I think it's a Stanford Media Lab. Um, so Russia uses this a lot, I believe. And so what they do is they, their operatives pose as independent journalists and they pitch publications you know, with their article ideas. And then, you know, the publication thinks they're a legit journalist and they get their article published in, in, this, in this media source. It's not... I don't think they tend to be that successful with mainstream, mainstream, but like more independent news sites that can still have quite a lot of readership. They get their stuff published quite easily on there. And then once that's out, then, you know, a whole bunch of other operatives can jump on that and circulate it and give it loads of engagement. So it looks really legit. So if you see a a tweet of an article Mm -hmm. with hundreds of likes and retweets, the social proof in that is going to make you think that it's a legitimate and popular thing. Right. And that makes you more likely to engage with it. So that, that's one that I, I think is interesting um, and, uh, and under, under-researched. Um, and just to, to throw another one into the mix, there's been a real strong rise in disinformation for profit. So yes. you remember back in 2016 with the Macedonian teenagers who were pumping out anti-Hillary Clinton and pro-Trump stuff? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, they they split-tested that, right? And like they would have gone the other way if that stuff had generated more engagement they didn't really care about the politics it was just you know like pro-trump anti-hillary is what what resonates Mm -hmm. so they went with that and i've seen um more and more of that of that trend recently so um uh, i was with a a non-profit called the global disinformation index for um in 2019 and a lot of their work was focusing on like breaking down the link between disinformation and um uh, money from advertising coming to those disinformation websites. Mm-hmm. So a lot of them will just go out there and they'll they'll put out clickbait and disinformation and whatever resonates with people really. Um, and then you know they'll they'll just earn money through online advertising for all the clicks and the views that that go onto that. Uh, and that and that really pollutes the information ecosystem and it's it's just it's just nasty and it's it's really like all over the place. So. So those two will be yeah, notable trends in the last couple of years. Yeah, that's interesting. That's also kind of like an independent, more mercenary profit motive. I know it's a huge problem for media agencies that are trying to bid on ads, right? If you just have a bunch of fake dollars in the 
ecosystem, it, it really messes with pricing and that touches on some very big spenders like car brands and things like that, who are worried about, you know, are there ads being served to troll farms or like exactly. real customers? Exactly. Um, so difficult for them. <laughs> but also disinformation for profit in terms of trying to essentially extort brands. We've, we've seen some attacks where they threaten to just overwhelm a search algorithm and downrank you, you know, take you down from yeah. position one to whatever. Have, have you seen, I guess what I'm trying to get here is what are the business implications here? You know, we have the case of Wayfair and QAnon yeah. getting mixed together. Um, how do you see private enterprise approaching this problem? Is it on their radar? Are they beginning to ask about it? Do they, I imagine that for companies, it seems like something that's entirely out of their control, but I'm sure mm -hmm. they're struggling with it. Yeah, uh, I was thinking a lot about this recently because, yeah, I, I was trying to figure out like the extent of this being a problem for them and, and how aware they were. Um, I, I think there's a lot less aware, a, a lot less awareness, a lower level of awareness mm -hmm. in, in commercial brands compared to politics, right? Like everyone asso associates disinformation with Trump and Brexit and and mm -hmm. political as a geopolitical stuff. phenomenon exactly precisely russia and china and so on um but we have seen these 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 cases of wayfair and, and there's been starbucks i think and ben and jerry's recently um where they have been attacked uh, in a politically motivated way um there's i suppose the first issue is reputation management right like mm -hmm. this kind of stuff could potentially damage their reputation although in a way, it can have the opposite effect because I think when there's two political sides attacking a brand, like the liberals, if the if the conservatives are attacking Ben and Jerry's for being too mm -hmm. liberal, the liberals are going to buy more Ben and Jerry's as a kind of tribal response, I suppose. Um, so that could go either way. I think there's more insidious applications like maybe a company, some quite underhanded company buying a bunch of astroturfers to go and give bad reviews about their rival, right. this kind of thing, right? On, on Glassdoor or on Amazon or, or whatever, um, that kind of thing. Because, because social proof is so important for the average consumer on the internet when deciding if they're going to engage with a brand or not. And if they see a bunch of bad reviews or, or get any, any wind of, of something negative, then that, that could very well cause them to lose business. And I think that sort of thing is more dangerous than like purely politically motivated attacks on brands. Indeed. I think while well, we're seeing some of it play out, it's not disinformation, so I don't want to conflate the two, but this highly decentralized uh, communications environment in which the volume and velocity of messaging can move markets, as we have seen very recently with GameStop and Reddit, right? A conversation yeah. that was ignored by the establishment can literally move the market by billions of dollars. You can imagine a, a pump and dump scheme or or something else to just manipulate to, uh, stock prices. Yeah, it's so powerful and yeah, and, and open to anyone really who, who as we saw with GameStop. Yeah, any anyone. So, um, yeah, we've come across this term, uh, sort of misinfosec, right? It's like the the wing of a company that's now going to have to take this on. 
it strikes me that social media is traditionally the purview of PR and communications teams. Whereas when you think InfoSec, it's the security team, IT, CIO, CISO. Um, have you worked with brands at a level where you're starting to see coordination? These are two you know, branches of an organization that typically don't have a lot of overlap with one another. Yeah, uh, I've worked with cybersecurity clients who are doing this on behalf of, of um, other organizations. So I can, can mm -hmm. speak um, in a broad sense about that. Um, in, in that situation, they have um, a, a team of specialist disinformation analysts who know the social media landscape, they know the psychology, they know the patterns that, that indicate coordinated inauthentic behavior. And they work in a, in, a, in a team, in a workflow with more traditional uh, cybersecurity analysts. So, so people who can uh, attribute the stuff or who can look at the net signatures or you know, the very technical parts and try to attribute that back to where it came from. So this, this kind of, these kind of work in tandem. But again, that's not something in-house. And I haven't noticed too much of that in-house, mm -hmm. perhaps in very big companies. If a company has a trust and safety team, then they may be developing that sort of capability. Um, but the way I see it is that, yeah, both of these sides are needed. You know, you need the comms, you need the, the psychology, really, and more of the, the infosec. So in an ideal world, there would be a team incorporating all of those experts. Yeah, you're going to have to do battle at the narrative level and the technological level. Precisely. Um, yeah, so I guess... Um, let me ask a different question and, um, and we'll <laughs> circle back to ISIS in a way. Um, although that sounds terrible to say, um, is there a way that we could catch polarization early enough? I know, um, there's been much discussion about the business models of social media being a contributing factor. Um, but so the time of your research in Brexit, it strikes me that that is the case where social is exacerbating an existing divide, right? There was a referendum. So clearly people already had a formed opinion. They were sort of on one side of a public policy issue. And then those opinions became magnified or, uh, you know, distilled. But when you look at these conspiracy theories like QAnon and others that have very clearly dangerous implications, as we have seen here in the United States very recently, is there some mitigation effort that we can use to stop someone from becoming a QAnon? Like, how do we interrupt that? Um, I don't know what that hypnosis chain. On all of the terms, like, <laughs> that journey, you know, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. Like, how, yeah. How do we identify these groups and, and try to get ahead of the problem rather than, you know, have to always be on our heels reacting to it? Mm, yeah. Well, well, I mean, Brexit did, did catch everyone by surprise, right? Because it was one of the, the first cases of a, a disinformation mm -hmm. campaign. Um, now we're, we're more prepared to deal with that stuff. In, in terms of that, I mean, I wish I had a really concrete answer to this. Um, I think that what I, what I would say would be, um, we need to identify like the, the rumbles of this stuff on social media and, and not just social media, but also the mainstream media, right? Mm -hmm. In Brexit, a lot of the Remainer versus Brexiteer divide was driven by the press. You know, the Daily Mail, for example, and the Daily mm -hmm. Express. These are very big culprits in this situation. Um, but, but in terms of social media, we could 
we could use NLP and, and similar tools to just to monitor narratives on an ongoing basis. Um, and, and just, you know, all the time really know what's being said about certain topics. Um, and we can analyze user to user behavior in relation to those narratives and see if there are any signs of things that indicate like groups polarizing in a harmful way. I think we have to be careful that because polarization and, and, and group stuff is always going to happen. And I think mm -hmm. it's okay, right? It's just when it gets dangerous, like with the whole QAnon stuff. So there, there'd be quite a fine line to draw there. But we, we could analyze for signs of outgroup of outgroup derogation or of hostility between groups. Um, and then analysts could dive in further to that rabbit hole and, and you know, um, look in detail um, at what's going on there. So we'd use like a large social listening or NLP tool for the early warning signs and then human analysts to dive in and, and unpick the data in more detail. I think that would be one way to do it. And in terms of actually stopping it, it would have to be like ISIS, I suppose, maybe. Um, what do they do with ISIS when they identified them, went to their homes and in intervened? I, I don't know what that would look like, but if there's a, a danger, perhaps it would have to go that way. Yeah, I guess I'm also curious, have you seen any evidence in your research as to any correlations with age? Are younger users less susceptible because as digital natives, they tend to be more skeptical? You know, I think what was really surprising to me mm -hmm. was to learn that a lot of conspiracy theory adherents tended to be older. And then, of course, once I thought about it a little bit longer, it made perfect sense if you were less inured to social media algorithms and you're at home and you're in lockdown and you're on Facebook or YouTube all day, right? It's very easy to get drawn down that rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. um, but I didn't yeah. know if you, if you'd started to see any correlations to age. Um, I haven't specifically analyzed by age, um, but, but just from my general knowledge in the space, uh, definitely uh, um, there's a, you know, it, it leans towards the older people, for sure, like like you say, um, for example, conspiracy theories around the pandemic, right? Like anti-vax mm -hmm. and all of that. Like I would say that skews older because a lot of that activity goes on in Facebook groups, and Facebook mm -hmm. is now skewing towards the older demographic, right? Whereas the the younger ones are on TikTok or Snapchat or um, YouTube, maybe. But but I think it, it depends on the platform as well. So so YouTube has been quite problematic with. Um, leading people down rabbit holes, like right. algorithmically driven rabbit holes. And I, I would say that YouTube compared to Facebook has a younger user base. So there, there's a risk there. I, I wouldn't say that just because somebody's a digital native that they are immune to this kind of thing. They still have the same psychology. Um, the same 200,000 year old hardwiring. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, it, it's just maybe uh, maybe they're a bit more skeptical and, and, and less gullible. I mean, that's gross generalization, but it could be could be the case. And and surely, you know, as more technology evolves, the clubhouses, the TikToks of the world are clearly learning the lessons of their predecessors and kind of what not to do in terms of content moderation or even even the way the engagement is fed. Um, I guess I wanted to circle back around to ISIS in terms of the de-radicalization programs that seem to have a lot of success in Europe with returning um, members. Um, and so 
do you see a role there as, you know, people who feel like they want to get out or say, you know, we were talking about, this was a physical kinetic conflict. You know, it started on social media, people traveled to Syria, but then they would come back and instead of throwing them in prison forever, you know, I think France and England pioneered some very strong de-radicalization efforts is, Mm -hmm. I mean, are we talking about that's the level of, of mental rewiring we may need? Well, yeah, so it's a tricky one. So um, I had a similar question from someone the other day, actually, and um, QAnon in particular set, shares a lot of features with with ISIS, right? So both of these are very, they, they provide a framework that touches so many different parts of, of an individual's life and mm-hmm. that, that, that attempts to explain many different uncertainties in the world around them. So that kind of thing is really compelling and it, and it sucks people in and, you know, they, they think they've found the explanation for stuff and they think like they feel they're, they're the enlightened ones and everyone else is the sheeple. Again, a kind of tribalism there. Um, yes. But, but that's super compelling in, in the moment and in particular when we're dealing with all this fear and uncertainty because of the pandemic, for example. And as you said earlier, people are at home all day and they're always online and they're scared that is a really like, potent cocktail of stuff that, that can lead them easily into that kind of thing. It makes them very easy target. And, and that, that compares very closely to the ISIS targeting because they, they, they went for young Muslims in the West primarily who mm-hmm. were perhaps um, experiencing an identity crisis and they didn't feel like they fitted in anywhere. And ISIS gave them an in-group and mm-hmm. that really cultivated this strong sense of in-group loyalty. And I believe QAnon does a similar thing, um, which can be very, very addictive. And once people are so um, entrenched and so committed to that whole worldview, someone could like us or whoever coming along and saying you're wrong is going to be really painful to them. And they're going to yeah, people probably will gonna fight rebel. To the, yes, people will tend to fight exactly. to the death to their identity. So if once it right. becomes a part of your identity, it's, you're not going to hold on to it real tight. It's a thing called the backfire effect, where, where people will cling to the beliefs more strongly if they're told that they're wrong. Um, mm-hmm. So I think because those those two things, QAnon and ISIS, do have these similar features and dynamics, then if de-radicalization is working for one, it could potentially, with some tweaking, you know, like cultural, religious contexts, etc., uh, yeah, it could be a useful blueprint for dealing with, with QAnon as well. Yeah, that's... Um terribly fascinating it's the curse of living in interesting times that's true it's a chinese curse well apparently (laughs) yes um well i wanted uh thank you very much for the time i know you're very busy but this has been a very thought-provoking discussion i think we'll we'll probably need to revisit i'm sure in six months the disinformation landscape will have changed yet one more time and we'll need to understand that permutation but thank you again for taking the time to speak with us you're welcome george it's been a pleasure chatting to you and yeah thanks for having me here thank you again to samantha north for lending her valuable time and expertise to this discussion and thank you for listening if you like what you hear subscribe or leave a rating on the podcast platform of your choosing it'll help others find us this podcast is a production of safeguard cyber chloe leclerc is our producer our theme music was composed by matthias cephaletti sound design and editing is by kai crow getty until next time stay safe stay strong and we'll be back soon